Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week, talking about investments, and we've got four companies or investment ideas for your holiday stocking portfolio. Don, the first thing I wanted to ask you is, I know that you teach investments to high school students, and I just always wondered in a class like that, do you have a big idea that you hope students take away? Yeah, it's that data matters and understanding markets matters and that you should be well-versed and understand what's happening in the world and what's happening in markets and how we evaluate companies in addition to just their name brand. The thing I've always thought is current events, right? We make kids read current events all the time. And to me, stocks are a way to get closer to those current events. They're a way to kind of follow them, follow the companies that make the headlines, make the news and stuff like that. Do you spend most of your time in your class talking about like the market in general or just buying the index of stocks? Or do you spend a lot of time talking about individual companies? We spend about the first 20 minutes of class every day talking about what's going on in the world because that leads to understandings of things like buybacks and whatnot and IPOs. And if we understand what's going on currently, then apply that better to long-term trends. We do talk about mutual funds. We talk about index funds. We talk about all these other basic concepts. But in general, we try to focus on what's happening today. Usually, the the most sound advice is just buy the market, right? Buy an index with every stock in it. And historically, you'll get a 7% return each year. Let it compound and you'll probably have a nice retirement if you just keep contributing slowly over your life. Do kids just sort of think that's really boring and instead they just want to find some high-flying stock that could double in a year and that's really what they want to see? It's kind of split because some people don't want to put much time into it. They don't want to put much energy into it. And they feel that they don't understand things. So why not buy the index? And then there are other people that want to take a high flyer on a stock. But also what I try to convey to them, what they understand is it's not just guessing and just picking a random company or one that sounds good. It is researching what it is that company does and why they are successful. I think the other hard part, too, is people see stock prices go up and down and stock prices go up and down just based upon people that want to buy and sell it. Not necessarily does the price relate to the day to day actions of a company and stuff like that. However, over time, it seems like the price does link to companies. Today, what I want to talk about is sort of four investment ideas that are out there. Costco. Netflix, Tesla, and Bitcoin. These are things that have been in the news for a long time. And you and I are not going to sit here and talk about nitty gritty professional stock investor numbers like debt levels or PE ratios and stuff like that. You and I are probably not even qualified enough to talk about that. But instead, I want to look at these companies like a common person would. Peter Lynch, who wrote one of the most famous investment books, One Up on Wall Street, basically gave the most sound advice, which is buy what you know, invest in companies that you use their products. Think about companies as a story and that do you think the company can still grow and do they still have avenues to keep growing in the future? And if you think they do, they probably are a good investment idea. And so the first company I want to start out with is Costco. That's a company you and I are both connected to. And uh, Costco over the last 10 years, Don, is up 423%. It has a current market cap value of $162 billion. What do you think of Costco? What do you think of its prospects over the next 10 years? Do you think it could ever become obsolete? When you hear the name Costco, what do you think? 
I absolutely love Costco. I'm going to go later today and spend four or $500, as I always do every time at Costco, almost entirely on food for that record. I love Costco. For a while, they weren't the darling of the markets because they only make like 2 to 3% profit on things they sell. And they do that intentionally, which results in lower prices. It is a great experience as a consumer to go there. They make a lot of their money on selling the memberships, which is kind of a cool idea because you buy the membership and then you're invested. So then you come back to Costco again and again. The most interesting story I have about Costco is that a few years back, the CEO went to Costco and felt like the lines were too long. And so he hired another like 2,000 people nationwide so there'd be more checkouts open so the lines would be shorter. And Wall Street hated this because it increased costs without really increasing revenue much at all but it made for a better consumer experience. And I think that's what trumps all at Costco is it's a good consumer experience. The products there are high quality. That's my favorite part about it. And that's usually when you're thinking about a company to invest in, okay, does the company make its customers excited or happy? And you're right, Costco seems to have very high satisfaction surveys. People get excited when they talk about Costco. I would assume half the time when you're having a dinner party, you're hanging out in friends, somehow the idea of Costco or its famous Kirkland brand comes up because it's a product that everybody likes and people are usually smiling when they talk about it. You mentioned the idea of the memberships and that's something that I think is amazing. When you think, here's a company that has almost 100 million members And every year you have to pay $60 to have your membership. And that's nearly a 100% profit margin. When you think they don't have to do anything for that. They don't have to give you anything in return except the plastic card. But that is for your right to then go and shop there. And I think that's an amazing business, right? Look at that revenue stream that comes in every year just from people having to shop for the right to go there. I love the fact that when you go into the store, they have the sort of, I didn't know they were selling these moment, right? Usually I'll go in there and be like, oh my God, they've got a treadmill for a really good price. Or last fall, they had an NBA jam arcade game that you're like, I don't need that. But God, that would be great to have. I just always think that like it's a store that I love just going just to kind of walk around and see things. I always joke, but it's kind of half true. I raised my children at Costco whenever they were super young and it was like, I got to get out of my house. I would just take them to Costco and we would walk every aisle and just like, oh, wow, like I could buy a whole new dish set for $39.95. And that place has something for me. I will always think positively about them. Absolutely. And not only are there the surprising things, there's the reliable things. I buy fresh fish few places other than Costco because I know the fish is good and it's fresh. Same thing with the meats and vegetables. It's all good quality stuff at reasonable prices. I don't even really look at the price much at Costco because I know I'm going to buy it because it's probably a better deal there than anywhere else. And I know it's going to be fairly high quality. And if not, I can return it for a full refund. I've seen people returning bones from meat at Costco. I mean, you can return everything. That's their guarantee. That's how they, it's another thing that creates customer loyalty. Yeah, no, just yesterday I was at Costco and a lady dropped her huge plastic bin of croissants and they fell all over the parking lot. And a Costco employee came running up to her and was like, don't worry, ma'am, I'll pick them up. Just go get another one, no charge. And that's the kind of thing that I think builds a lot of loyalty. They also obviously have a lot of name brand products there. I was surprised because I literally bought a paint bucket full of sour cream for like $3. And, you know, that's cheaper 
then just find a small, reasonable portion size of sour cream and have that sour cream in my refrigerator It'll probably go bad by the time we eat it all. Or maybe we'll use it to caulk our shower. But, you know, that's the, that's a neat idea, I guess. It's good value. The other thing that's got a lot of value, though, is that Kirkland brand. And I came across an article. Uh, it was on a blog called Napkin Math. And they were writing about the Kirkland brand and, you know, sort of what it does. And I want to read you as the best paragraph I read. They said, Kirkland also has a passionate and loyal fan base, not something you typically find with a private label brand. One guy even got a Kirkland signature tattoo on his left arm and held his 27th birthday party at the Costco food court. Kirkland's success defies our intuition and experience. Shouldn't lower prices lead to lower quality product? How can they offer rock bottom prices, but still have some of the best products around? The answer is this. They get the best manufacturers in the world who already have products on Costco shelves to make Kirkland products. Yeah, you read that right. While customers might not know it, Kirkland products are often made by the same manufacturers who make the branded products that sit next to them on the shelves. And not only that, but according to a Reddit user who worked at Costco as a supplier, Kirkland products have to be at least 1% better than the equivalent branded products on some metric of their choosing. Costco forces manufacturers to compete with a better version of themselves. And Don, I just think that's incredible. When you think, basically, when you go to Costco, you can find the sour cream by the name brand and then the Kirkland brand. And it's probably made by the same manufacturer. But I love the fact that there's a 1% difference on one metric where Costco has to be better. I've never been disappointed by Kirkland product. They are rock solid. And you, I knew this, that it was made by the major, manu, major manufacturers and relabeled because they can make money that because they don't have to advertise it and they can fill out the pr pr production quota. And it works. It's actually a win-win for both. Did you read about Kirkland golf balls about three, four years ago? No. Kirkland golf balls were the best golf ball on the market. And word got out in golfing circles about how good these golf balls were. And Kirkland or in Costco sold out. They couldn't keep up. And these were resaled for much higher prices because they were the superior product. And still Kirkland golf balls are hard to find, but that is a top-notch golf ball. But it's a good example of what Costco does. We're offering a fantastic product at a very reasonable price and you buy in bulk and I never leave there without spending $400. That's true. Costco, usually you've ended up spending $50 more than you intended to spend whenever you end up there because you start going through the final aisles and you're like, oh my God, chocolate dusted almonds. I need these, right? You know, my favorite Kirkland products, the Kirkland ice cream bars are amazing. Tortilla chips. What's your favorite Kirkland product? Kirkland ice cream. The vanilla ice cream is top notch. Yeah, it's solid. It is very solid. You mentioned this about the cost of production for Costco at a store. And the one thing that I have always also noticed about them is their employees. The employees always feel, I don't have any data to back it up, but the employees always feel more energetic, more engaged. And I have seen some of the same people working at Costco for the last 10 years. As somebody who also does shop at Meyer or Kroger, I don't feel like I see that similar sort of engagement or energy from them. I also don't feel like I see the same Meyer or Kroger employees there. I got to assume part of this reason is because Costco, I think, pays their employees more, offer, offers some health insurance benefits. And I guess my question is, why don't you think 
a Meyer or a Kroger wants to go down that road and maybe try to pay their employer more, offer them better benefits. Because having turnover in employees, having less loyalty has got to kind of hurt you, don't you think? Yes. And there was a New Yorker article about this a few years ago about what it is at Uniqlo. Uniqlo is a retailer in many big cities. They sell clothing, but they have a tremendous number of employees and they pay them very, very well. And this is a newer trend among retail is have more employees and pay them really well. Because when you pay them well, they're in a good mood, like the Costco employees. They are consistent and they also create more sales, not only from the positive feedback. I mean, I know I've checked out at Costco and pe- the checkout person said, wow, this, these are great. Don't you love them? I'm like, yeah, they like the product too. However, there's no more phantom box outs, which is a term in retail where it's on the shelves, it's in the store, but customers can't find it. And at Costco and other places where they pay their employees well, that doesn't happen because somebody's around and they're happy to walk you to show you where you can find the recliner or the mattress topper or whatever. And that the higher paid retail employees lead to all much better sales. Now that said, again, this is another reason why Costco has not been traditionally the darling of Wall Street. They pay their employees too much. At Walmart, they pay their employees far less and it probably results in higher stock value. Right. But I mean, at the same time, 10 years, cost goes up 423%. It's got to be some kind of a Wall Street darling, right? I mean, it's clearly made money for anybody who's invested in the company. And you're right. You could say, well, the bottom line could be bigger. But as you're just saying there, that behavior of the Costco employee to help out the customer, right? The guy who ran out to pick up the croissants yesterday, I don't see that kind of behavior at a different store. Now, you could also say, well, Costco is making all this basically free money from their memberships, which obviously a Meyer or a Kroger doesn't really charge. I just have always wondered why those other corporations wouldn't want to invest in their employees in that way. I I feel like they would get the money back just from having a more well-run store. You're not having to constantly retrain new employees. Your turnover is going to be less, right? Well, that's what Trader Joe's does. And that's why I shop at Trader Joe's as my second grocery store, because other than Costco, because they are small, they don't carry any name brands, but they're well-staffed and the employees are well-paid. It's like a tiny Costco and it's owned by a German company. And that's the same idea there. And so, yes, other companies could go with that, but they don't. They seem to want to really mine that low-cost traditional buyer that's going to go to Kroger, which I hate. I don't hate (laughs) the buyers. I hate Kroger. The other thing, too, of course, Costco, $1.50. You can get a hot dog and a sugary soda on your way out. I've noticed that as my kids get older, like my whole family can go have a very cheap lunch for about like eight or $10, you know, and they have a couple other nice items. Their pizza is very good. And it's just another one of those little niches that they just seem to have found to, again, make people loyal to them. Also the gasoline, also the sweetheart deal with the credit card company. You know, they're making money on that. Yeah, no, that's true. So then here's my question to you about Costco. What disrupts them? You and I have talked about it in the past, but Nothing lasts forever. There was a day when Sears and Kodak were two mega companies in America, and people thought there's no way those companies could ever go out of business, and yet they have because they got disrupted, right? New people came and kind of ate their lunch and took their business. Okay, 50 years from now, do you see Costco still here doing what they're doing, or could they be disrupted? I see Costco around. I see Costco growing at like maybe 8% per year or 10% per year, moving to more areas and taking over more spots. I don't think they're 
can be quickly antiquated the way that Kodak was based on the change in technology. Sears just, I, I, I can't figure out why Sears failed. I guess they weren't good at anything in particular. Their auto center made a bad decision in terms of trying to maximize revenue. Their tools were not that great and tools could be bought at Home Depot, which grew faster. It's just kind of a all, it does everything, but nothing great. That's what Sears' problem was. Costco does one thing great, and that is buying things for customers in bulk and customer service. I would judge where I moved based upon the proximity to a Costco. I would reconsider a, a location if it was more than an hour to Costco. No, and that's a good point, especially about Sears and that. I think literally people like my dad were getting annoyed when they were looking for a new crowbar and there was a fluffy sweater being sold next to it, right? During the era of department stores, Sears kind of seemed to make sense. We're going to sell everything to everybody. But as you're right, like a Home Depot just was a bigger hardware store. I was like, well, that's where I'm going to go. You go to Kohl's for cheap clothes and pretty soon Sears just was kind of dark and dingy and, and just didn't really do anything well. And I think you're right. Costco does have its competency. It seems to know what it does and that they seem to have streamlined their product. I think, you know, the typical grocery store has 10, 20,000 different products and Costco has like 5,000 products. Like they have narrowed it down to like, this is what we're going to sell and we're going to sell it well. And then we're going to have kind of the surprise items that we show to appear. And it seems to work for them. I was wondering about the only disruption I was thinking of is I agree with you. It's probably going to grow probably slower as I don't know how many more stores they think they can put in America that they don't already have. I'm sure there's some room. So you, you figure that you figure price inflation over time continues to allow the sales numbers to look bigger every year. My only thing about disruption would be maybe more and more people don't like going shopping. I love going to Costco. Again, I raised my kids there. I love walking around just to see what they have. But like my wife hates shopping. She hates the crowds. She doesn't want to deal with the parking. Anything about the experience just kind of sickens her. And therefore, I was just thinking like, do you think delivery? All of a sudden, like the next future is literally warehouses where customers are not allowed to go in. Therefore, there's even lower prices. And then they just deliver to homes. And maybe that becomes the new shopping model if there's a lot of people that don't want to shop. I only think that becomes affordable and viable if it is autonomous delivery. And that, I think, is further than we think. I think it's probably 10, 20 years down the road. Even if it does come, the companies that create the autonomous distribution, they probably are going to run a contract to deliver people things from Costco. Who's better at getting good products to different locations than Costco? And they can service the final destination company, which is probably going to be a different company, whether it be Google or Tesla or Amazon or whomever. They can make it as a distribution network. So I still have faith in Costco in that situation. You're probably right in that they already are good at that. And why couldn't Costco be the one to pivot that way? And I guess that's sort of the great question about all of these companies is it always seems like everybody can't be overtaken, but yet usually you miss that next technology. And the next company I want to ask you about, Netflix. Netflix is the classic example of they came and took out a business that everybody thought would be here forever. And that was Blockbuster Video. Back in the 80s and 90s, Don, how many hours did you spend with friends walking around a video store looking for whatever movie you were going to watch that Friday night, right? And now Blockbuster is just this thing of the past. It doesn't exist anymore. Nobody watches physical VHS or DVD movies. And therefore, let me just ask you, what do you think about Netflix? Netflix is currently a $236 billion company. 
company. And over the last 10 years, the stock has grown 1,938%. What are your thoughts there? There's a great article on Netflix in the New Yorker about eight years ago. And yes, Netflix is super interesting. Their smartest move was going to create their own content because yes, they killed Blockbuster because of Blockbuster's stubborn adherence to the stores. Even though they had all the technology and all the customers and all access to all the movies, Blockbuster should have won, but didn't because they were poorly managed. But Netflix wins. But I think the real genius of Netflix is they create their own content. Because anybody can stream you movies. And now there's dozens of choices of places you could stream movies and TV shows. But Netflix created their own content, and that's the corner they occupy now. And as long as they have really good content, they will have a dominant position. However, they're spending so much money to create the content. I think it's like $12 billion this year just to create content. It's hard for them to make money. Their only way they really make money is if they expand worldwide and get enough consumers that their content acquisition can be balanced out by the revenue they get from the consumers. So they have this little problem here with the insatiable desire of the public for more content and their desire to provide it, which is tied to the subscriptions that they get paid and having enough subscribers to pay for this content. It's a tough spot. I don't know if they're that profitable that we really should be investing that much in Netflix. It's a tough road they're in. Netflix is a fascinating company from the fact that they started out with the DVD service. I remember like in the early 2000s being like, what? Like you just, the DVD comes in the mail and then you were like, man, this is great, right? You just sort of lined up your queue and all of a sudden you had more DVDs coming. It was free shipping. And then the streaming thing came a few years later. And what's amazing about them is, and this is why they're so disruptive. And it's it's why they've kind of like upset old Hollywood. They've upset old media companies is basically they used all of the old media company content to get people onto their platform. Disney used to make $300 million a year from Netflix. Netflix would write them that check and a bunch of the Disney cartoons and content would be on Netflix. So you and I could go and watch Disney content. But meanwhile, more and more people kept coming to Netflix. It was the only streamer in the game and they were starting to then develop their own content. As you were saying, that was their brilliance, right? They used all of Hollywood's content to get people there and now everybody wisened up and they were like, oh my God, we were taking these easy checks for content we'd already created. It seemed so profitable, but we were basically creating our own competitor. And now what you see is Netflix barely has anybody else's content now, or they limited uh, rent it from people. But really now people go to Netflix to watch their own content. And I just looked it up in 2019, it was 17.3 billion that they spent on their own content. Some people predict that by 2028, they might be spending 26 billion. And as you're saying, at what point can you become just just a regular, steadily profitable company. And maybe it's just one of these things where you've got to have the vision of we're going to have a billion customers someday, and we're just going to keep raising our prices by a dollar a year and, and trying to increase there. But as you're saying, people are limitless. They want more and more new and new content. And that just seems like a really tough treadmill to be on as a business. You're right. They are trying to do this. And at the same time, people are spending more and more time streaming at home, especially during the pandemic, but maybe continuing on. However, they seem to have really good people. You and I both read an article in the 
Journal, or is that in the Times, about how they only hire the best people. They don't even want the A minus people. They only want the A plus people. And they're constantly cycling through people that don't want to be committed, but they only get the highest, most skilled people and pay them tons and tons of money to be the best. There was a sentence from The Hollywood Reporter where they just said, Netflix is winning the pandemic, siphoning viewers from broadcast and cable. And that's another thing to kind of think about is the fact that cable subscriptions continue to drop more and more as people don't really want to actually watch live TV. People are just happy streaming whatever's on their latest Netflix queue. And Netflix seems really good at it. The other thing that Netflix is good at is they've been collecting the data. And that's something that nobody ever thought about. It used to be you created TV shows or movies based upon one person's vision of a script or an idea for a story. The movie or the TV show came out and people either thought it was good or it was bad. Netflix seems like they were the first people to say, well, why don't we just study viewing habits, right? If people like something, then we need to make more shows like that. And that to me also seems like part of their genius. Absolutely. My favorite thing that's interesting that nobody knows about Netflix is, do you know who actually does the streaming of the movies? No. Amazon Web Services. Oh, really? Who they pay a huge chunk of money to every year to make the streaming possible. Netflix doesn't actually stream it. That's Amazon. And that would make sense. Amazon's web services, that's another podcast for some day, but that's a huge business that's out there where people are just storing their data up there in the cloud. I remember a couple of years into the Netflix experiment where they started creating their own content. I believe House of Cards was the first major show that they just produced and put out there. And of course, they also came out with the idea of, we're not going to make you wait week to week to watch something. We're just going to dump every episode from a season out there and people can just binge watch, right? That became a new cultural behavior that they literally shifted the idea that people would just sit in front of their TV for like 10 hours to consume an entire show. Now you could say that's one of the most unhealthiest things we've ever started as a society. <laughs> But they're responsible for changing how people behave. And that says something about them as a company. One thing I've always wondered, though, is when you just give everybody all of the episodes, the shows kind of come and go. It's almost impossible now to actually chart what new shows come up on Netflix because there's so many of them. And like, you know, whereas HBO, you think about like their Game of Thrones where like they would release one a week and then everybody would start talking about it. And they would, what does it mean? They would analyze it. And then more people would want to jump in next week so they could be a part of the conversation. And it seemed like it was a way to build an audience. I'm almost now astounded of, I'll talk to you and you'll be like, yeah, like I'm watching Peaky Blinders, I think. And I know you love that show. I've never heard of it. Or somebody will tell me about another show and I'm like, I've never heard of that. And I'll be like, well, I'm watching this show and no one's ever heard of that. And it's almost like there's so many shows out there. There's so little advertising or buzz. I sometimes wonder how many good shows are just forgotten or missed by people because there's almost too much. Yeah. And there's less of that common experience in that everybody watched Seinfeld because that was a show that was on one of the big networks during prime time because you watch TV at a certain time and you had appointment viewing. There is no appointment viewing in Netflix. And the binge watching is an absolute fantastic term because that's exactly what it is. But it does contribute to that insatiable desire for content. And they roll through content so quickly. But maybe that creates love in the viewers. It's interesting because you mentioned HBO. I was thinking about this the other day. We have Disney Plus and we've been watching The Mandalorian, which comes out every week. I don't think if Mandalorian came out every week, we'd still have a Disney Plus subscription. I think we would have binged it and then 
dropped our Disney Plus subscription. But that's about the only reason we have Disney Plus now. Right. I just wonder, I mean, obviously Netflix is confident in their model and it obviously seems to work. They have a growing number of subscribers. And I don't believe that if Netflix is winning, that Disney Plus can't win either or HBO Max or Hulu. I think there's a world where all of these streaming services can work. I think the loser becomes cable as people just say, I don't need that. But I could see where everybody's got just enough shows that they like on different sources that they just keep buying all of these different subscriptions. One of the things that I remember was there was a show, I don't know if you ever watched the show Marco Polo on Netflix. Did you ever see that one? Nope. Marco Polo to me seemed like the classic, we made this show after studying the algorithms of what people like, because the show is supposedly about Marco Polo back in the, you know, I think the 13th century when he goes to live with Genghis Khan. And this, the first episode is just classic because he shows up and he immediately becomes the prisoner, right? He's this kind of good looking guy, of course, great abs, takes his shirt off a lot. And of course, he's got the kind of creepy, mysterious con that's talking to him. And he's now the prisoner. But then the con says, like, you can live here. I'm not going to kill you. So then Marco Polo has to be taught karate because people in America think that everybody in Asia knows karate, right? Then Marco Polo has to, of course, have a karate master who's blind because only blind karate masters are really cool to the American audience. I've got to assume the algorithm told them that. And of course, there's this beautiful love interest that Marco Polo is forbidden to date because, of course, the algorithm would probably tell somebody that you're not allowed to date somebody, even though they're beautiful. And there's tons of these moments where they kind of almost kiss. Then, of course, there's this horrific moment where the Khan has to horrifically kill somebody. So he puts him in a bag and has a bunch of horses run him over because Americans, I think, love a crazy torture scene. And now the first episode is like wrapping up. And of course, you're like, my God, I have seen everything. And I think they were like, well, look, there's only one thing left. We have to have Marco Polo walk through the Khan's harem. He's got to walk through all of these women that are trying to seduce him. And if he can't walk out of there, then he'll be killed. And so literally everything Americans love about a show is wrapped into this first episode. And you could just see where the writers were like, well, what do people want to watch? And they want to watch all of that. To me, it just seemed like Netflix. I think they're going to be able to figure out more shows that people like. Well, their focus on data and their rock solid employees allow them to really take advantage of that situation. Maybe they're winning. I like their model and their decisions they've made better than what big corporates made. Even your boys at Disney have made some big mistakes and shown some lack of uh, wise decision making, unlike Netflix, who with one exception seemed to be on the road to profit. Yeah. And now Disney's collecting that data and stuff like that. And it will be interesting if they somehow, I guess, try to collect their Disney Plus data and wrap it into theme park tickets or, you know, you never know what they'll start producing as well. But clearly everybody realized that Netflix's model is good and it's lasting. And I guess I'll just ask you this, Don, is how does Netflix get disrupted possibly long into the future? Or do you think they're just here to stay? I think their best chance is their people and the goodwill they've built up. I don't think people have that much love for Netflix. I think that Netflix, if they were trumped by better content continuously by Hulu or whomever, that they could quickly lose their advantage. I think you're right. I think people are very content loyal. And as you said, if The Mandalorian wasn't on, 
then you're probably not having your subscription, right? I do wonder how many people sort of end subscriptions to then restart when their favorite show comes back. At the same time, it's kind of a pain. And usually all these streaming services at their price point are just enough that like you don't really think about it in terms of like, it's just on your credit card, it gets dinged and you're like, eh, it's too much of a hassle, I'll just keep it. At the same time, you're right. If they don't have the right content, maybe that doesn't work. I also wonder too, do you think attention spans are getting even less and that maybe YouTube, TikTok becomes the competitor to Netflix one day is just people say, eh, I'd rather just watch some guy stand on his head for 15 seconds or dance to a weird song. And therefore I don't need Netflix anymore. Well, there was that experiment to take uh, big corporate uh, network money and make TV shows that were short format and intended to be viewed on a phone. And that was a massive failure. I can't remember the name of that company, but that just- oh, it was a terrible name. It was I, I, I know what you're talking about, though. TikTok might find his niche just like Instagram, just like Twitter, just like whatever. But it's just kind of an ongoing alternative diversion. I don't think it's uh, sit-down viewing. Okay. No, I and I agree. And people are always going to want content. I do wonder, do you think, though, they could get to a point where they just have so much content that people feel overwhelmed and they literally almost start watching less. I mean, that's kind of happened to me, to be honest, is my wife and I will sit down, let's watch something. We get on there. We don't know what we want to watch. And we're almost overwhelmed to the point where we almost just turn it off. We don't watch anything. Well, that's not what happens because people just start watching something and the next one queues up and the next one queues up really fast and they'll find you. They got their algorithm. They'll find you with what you want. Maybe it's because the algorithm's confused between what you want to watch, your wife wants to watch, what you want to watch together. Maybe those are all three different things. But yeah, it's it's pretty solid. They're going to find you, find you something. The streaming service you talked about was Quibi. And uh, that was actually started by like Jeffrey Katzenberg and... Uh, old Hollywood kind of moguls that said, well, all the kids today just want to watch on their phones. We're going to make a streaming service that's just made for the phone experience. Failed miserably. To me, it seemed like one of those classic examples of old people that think they know what people want and they really have no idea what people want. Netflix seems to be maybe a company that's listening and, and, and adjusting. Absolutely. And when in doubt, watch Peaky Blinders. There you go. Okay, so then we move on from Netflix to maybe the most talked about stock company out there, Tesla. Tesla, over the last 10 years, if you would have invested, and Don, I remember when they came public at $17 a share. I was watching CNBC and they're like, little company making electric cars called Tesla coming out $17 today. Over the last 10 years, Tesla is up 10,596%. The market cap for the company is now a $658 billion market cap. And just for some perspective, GM has a 58 billion dollar market cap. Tesla sells 368,000 cars last year. GM sold 7.7 million cars last year. But Tesla is one of the hottest companies out there. It just continues to grow and grow. What do you like about it? What do you think about it? Where do you see it going? I've been telling students in investments class for years and years, don't buy Tesla stock. They just lose money. And that's all they have done is lost money until very recently it was the most shorted stock on Wall Street. And shorting means that people are betting it's going to go down through a form of making money through by short selling. And it, it's just been bad. Now, last weekend or two weekends ago, I went and drove a Tesla for free just because I I was so curious and it was a fantastic vehicle and really had fun, love the stores, love the cars. 
That said, it's not worth what it's supposed to be worth. Even if they made 20% on every car, which is insane, they would not be worth what they're supposed to be worth. They have to bank on selling services and a whole lot of other things in order to be worth what they say they're worth. They are not 10 times bigger or better than General Motors. However, in the eye of the investor, it is just a nonstop growth opportunity. At this point, I think it's the tail that's wagging the dog. Don, you went and test drove a Tesla? Oh, yes. Loved it. It was fantastic. That is the most billionaire thing you've ever done, sir. What was it like? Lightning fast, super nice, very, very smooth, see-through roof. It was very cool. My sons and I loved it. Everybody talks about like that it is a superior car. A lot of car and driver magazines like rank it very well. I've only been about 30 feet from a Tesla. It's as close as I've ever gotten. Tell me about it though. Like, is it legroom wise? Is there a lot of space in there? Well, I am six foot six and I had plenty of legroom. My son behind me had less than fantastic legroom, but nevertheless, it was a really nice car. That said, Americans don't like really nice cars. They want trucks and SUVs. Tesla's making one of those. They're building a factory in Tex Texas to do so. Yet they're just tapping into a small niche market right now, which is wealthy people that want cars. Their alternatives are probably Lexuses and Priuses, and yet they are driving Teslas, which is great, but I just do not see the mass market for this vehicle. I've seen from a distance that there's a huge screen in the, you know, the dashboard. Do you use the screen to turn the car on, or like, are your kids just watching Netflix on there while you're driving? What, what, what do you use the screen for? That's the mirrors. That's the uh, heat and air conditioning. It's the radio. It's the seats. It's everything. Everything's on that screen except the turn signals. It's not used for watching movies. Did you get to take it out on the highway? Like, could you take it into the insane or ludicrous speed mode that they kind of legendarily talk about and stuff like that? The one we drove was a Model Y that had two motors. It was four-wheel drive. It cost about $50,000, and it goes zero to 60 in four seconds. And it's a light-speed jump. It is very linear because it's electric motors, not gasoline engines that need to ramp up. It was really, really fast. I made my sons nauseous by flooring it at every chance I got. And yes, it was super cool. That said, my son said he'd vomit if he had to drive an hour in the car with me like that because I was going accelerating so quickly. So yes, it is very, very fast. Although it did not have the ludicrous speed mode, you have to buy the super sport option for an extra six grand to get that. You had to like, I guess, nitpick, like give me something that, eh, this wasn't very good. I think what wasn't very good was the fact that it's a well-handling, very fast car. It's like driving a Porsche or a Nissan 300ZX. It's fast, it holds the road really well. It's a great engaging driving experience that Americans don't want. Americans want to sit in a truck or an SUV high off the ground and pull around 5,000 pounds of steel with them. That's what Americans want right now. So it doesn't really feel that fill that niche. Was there a cup holder in the car? There were two and uh, a couple auto chargers, uh, wireless chargers for the phones and things like that. Yes, there was cup holders. It wasn't a European car where they have no cup holders. Could I get my large McDonald's beverage into that cup holder? Or was it a, just for like, you know, because California people seem so cool with their green smoothies. I just wondered if, will they be able to handle what the Midwest is going to want out of their cars? I think you could fit your tropical smoothie in there or your Slurpee, although I don't use Slurpees or heroin for the same reason. What about a big gulp? <laughs> I've never had a big gulp, but I, I, well, I suspect you could fit it in there. 
everybody hates to go buy a car and have to go to the dealership because you just have to deal with the salesperson and the haggling. Tesla has that weird model where I think they're being sold in malls sometimes. When you went in there, like, did you feel like you now had put up your wall of like, I hate you, sir? Or what was the sales process like at all? Well, you buy them online. The cars the sh- in Michigan, they're not even allowed to sell them because they don't have dealerships because this is another, they're really going to disrupt dealerships because they're cutting the dealerships out of it altogether. You order the car online, it gets delivered to your house. When it gets repaired, somebody comes to your house and fixes it. And unless you need tires, then you go to Costco or you go to a tire center or whatever. So Michigan itself hates Tesla because they are going to cut the dealerships all the way out of it. And that's a big interest group in the great state of Michigan. So yeah, you just go and you look at the car and the people are friendly and nice. We did the test drive and then we finished and the salesperson said, do you have any questions? And nope. All right. Have a nice day. That's it. We can order it online if we want. And that's some of the hook that's interesting about them. So basically, if anybody's looking to kill time over the holiday break, they should just go test drive a Tesla for the afternoon. Yeah, yeah, I got a half hour. I didn't get a whole afternoon, but it was definitely interesting. It was definitely a very, very cool experience. I think it'd be fun to have one, but I'm not sure I'm willing to spend 50000 for a car. That's so cool. That's such a rich guy thing that you did. I'm very impressed with that. Well, Tesla in general, of course, is has been described as a cult stock. And that what's been amazing is I think they just in October had their fifth consecutive quarterly profit. For the most part, it's been a company, as you said, that's lost money. Of course, Elon Musk is the guy behind it. And people love that billionaire. And whatever he does, people just get excited about. I mean, the stock has just been this leap of faith as more and more people jump into it. And it's just amazing to see how much it grows. Again, they sold 368,000 cars last year. GM sold 7.7 million. And people just kind of keep wondering, how much higher can this company go? Uh, it's one of the now like top five largest companies, I think, in, in the world in terms of the S&P 500. It just got adopted into the index this week. And the only thing I guess I could say is that the one change over the last 10 years is I now feel like I see Tesla's driving around. It's not like it's an endangered species like it was five years ago where you might have seen one. I feel like I see a lot of them in parking lots. There is a Tesla charging station near the Meyer that I shop at, and it used to just look like this abandoned charging station. You're like, what is this? And now I see, like, I feel like it's always full with people charging Teslas in there. And so it seems like the car is starting to hit kind of a mass market number where it's out there around. Would you agree? Absolutely. My sons notice them all the time. They like to call it which model it is. It's pretty cool. And it's definitely a neat vehicle. You know, there's been some articles about like people saying, well, I don't want to invest in it now because I feel like it's already done all the growth. And um, Barron's had a very interesting take. And I just sort of wanted to read this paragraph about where Tesla could maybe make more money. And so they said, more interesting still is that Tesla's core car business accounts for only 43% of some Wall Street's bull case target. They expect that Tesla will eventually make more profit per vehicle selling network services and insurance than from selling the vehicles themselves. Tesla buyers today can pay thousands extra for full self-driving capability or to unlock faster acceleration or to upgrade infotainment systems on older vehicles. There's talk of a subscription plan for battery charging. And so, Don, I guess one idea is if you think about Tesla, if you believe more people will buy them, Tesla might make more money with add-ons and subscription services. And that seems interesting. That's something you've never seen cars do before. Yeah, 
I mean, GM's had their own product called OnStar that they have used for a long time. They're now selling insurance through OnStar and they're working on other things like related to that. So yeah, maybe the service is a reason for the growth. But if you look at the stock chart, it took off halfway through 2019. And now it's really amazingly high. I don't know anything's changed in the last year and a half that made it worth so much more. And that's a good point. Other than, again, cult stock, right? People just believe in it and people just want it. Or some people just buy it because they just think it's a it's a momentum stock that's going up. They don't even care about the company. They'll just sell if that's where the momentum and the money is piling in. So that might be a reason why they're buying. Some people also say that, look, it's not a car company. It's a battery technology company. And that really, what's the most interesting thing they're doing is that they've got great battery technology to store electricity and that they're going to be the ones selling batteries to homes someday when we get off the grid or that they're going to be leading that world. And that's really why the company deserves to be trading at the prices that it's trading at. Two things. One, Warren Buffett said the dumbest reason in the world to buy a stock is because it's going up. And that's what I feel like is happening with Tesla. Two, there's no moats here. Anybody can make batteries. A lot of companies are making batteries. GM's made a lot of cars for a long time. I bet they can make batteries. I bet they're going to make a lot of them because they're on the way towards setting that up. I have little faith that Tesla is going to be the sole survivor in this situation. Well, once again, I don't think it has to be that Tesla wins and everybody loses. I, I think you're always going to have multiple different car companies. But I guess I'll ask you, like I've asked the other companies, what do you think disrupts them? What do you think could knock them out of the game in 50 years for so? GM, Ford, Toyota, companies that have good engineers, that have a lot of expertise in manufacturing ability, that have been doing this for a long time and know how to do it. And I would agree. I've got some friends that work at GM and I have a friend that works in the autonomous unit and how he talks about their technology and where they're at. And you read, you know, Wall Street analysts that kind of study these companies. And a lot of people say GM has technology that's on par. Some people say maybe better in all of these worlds of autonomous and electric. They've got all these different vehicles coming out. And yet most of America still looks at a GM or a Ford or a Chrysler as just these dinosaurs of industry that are all on their way to extinction and that Tesla is just this sparkling, can't do anything wrong company. And I do think perception matters. People say Tesla, and again, Don, I'm fawning over you because you went and drove one, right? It's cool. You did a cool thing. If you'd said, yeah, Zach, I went and test drove a Malibu last weekend. I don't think I'm looking at you with such envy right now. It's because you used to drive a Malibu. And it was a terrible car. The, uh, the blinkers were always burning out because of bad electrical to them. <laughs> so again, you think, so you just think that, hey, maybe all of a sudden GM Ford, one of these car companies hits the right home run, has the piece of technology that people like. And all of a sudden you say, that's what takes out Tesla. Tesla's had this dedication to the this focus for a while, and they're a little bit ahead. I don't think they're that far ahead. I think that GM's got a couple electric cars that aren't fantastic, but they're going to have a lot more in three years and even more in five, and they're going to be luxury Cadillacs that will really compete with Tesla. And if it's price competitive, I don't think Tesla keeps this advantage forever. Also, oh. the people that are buying Teslas are not the people that were buying trucks and pickups and Chevys. And if you can get a Chevy that is electric and efficient and super cool, then maybe I don't want a Tesla. Maybe that doesn't appeal to Southern Ohio, to Kentucky, to West Virginia, to all those buyers there. Does Tesla really appeal to people nationwide? 
Well, Tesla's got that truck, at least that model that looks like it's ready for an apocalyptic war. If you've ever seen the designs on that thing. And therefore I could see that maybe appealing to your Ford 150 manly man kind of guy, right? Not if they like to tow trailers. I don't know. I'm not sold. I want to see where these sales are. That would be interesting to look at Tesla and see where are the sales. Are they all in areas with high income people, mostly with graduate degrees? Are there places or other places people are buying a lot? Compare that to where the Ford and Chevys are selling. I don't know if they've penetrated this market nationwide. I think they only have a niche product still, which is fine. Have a niche product, but it's not doesn't make the company worth what it's worth. Maybe not now, but it's all based on growth, right? A lot of people will pay for a stock based upon where they think the growth is. And as you and I said, more and more Teslas are around. It seems like they are gaining their hold slowly. Now, as you said, though, Ford is working to make an all-electric F-150 truck, and that is like the highest-selling vehicle in America. And therefore, if they could probably keep that going, it seems like Tesla's like war machine truck uh, might have limited appeal. But then again, people love to drive Hummers, right? And that car seems totally useless in the urban jungle that we live in, right? Except for the GM's going to release an all-electric Hummer next year, and it's going to have 800 horsepower and electric motors and go for 500 miles and be a real competitor. For an add-on service, can I get a machine gun turret on the top? You can probably get a foam machine gun on top. And if you move to uh, Alabama, you can probably get a real machine gun. The last thing I wanted to say about Tesla then is how much of you think that stock price is based in on Elon Musk and that there's a cult of personality. People just think he's brilliant. And obviously the guy has a lot of success to his name, but he's also out there tweeting all the time, saying lots of things. The stock moves up and down sometimes based upon what he tweets. And a part of me wondered, do you think like GM would do better if they hired President Trump to become their next CEO and literally just tweet and and say outrageous things and get people excited about the product? I think there is something there. I I wonder about that. That'd be interesting if he was a spokesman and was tweeting about it all the time. I think if you gave him production decisions, his businesses historically have ended up in bankruptcy more often than not. I think you need somebody with a little more nuanced business skill than Donald Trump. However, an advertisement from him would be polarizing, but could bring in a lot of sales in areas where Elon Musk are less pop, is less popular. Well, I just think if he is especially just out there every day promoting the product, I don't know. I just wonder how much sometimes, you know, one person's personality around a product can can help move product. And that was the best idea. I was trying to think of who else might get people excited about GM. And I thought, why not Trump? People, you know, people love or hate the guy, just like Musk. It seems like he would uh, he would get the attention. He would get that. Last investment idea then is called Bitcoin. I saw an article in Bloomberg. Bitcoin over the last ten years done is up nine, nine million, million percent. percent. That is tons. Right now, if you want to buy one Bitcoin, you, it would cost you twenty three thousand five hundred ninety six dollars. Bitcoin, again, seems to have its own kind of religious following. Some people believe in it. Some people think it's just a big made up thing. Where are you at? Would you recommend that as a uh, investment idea? Well, it is a made up thing made up by Sasoshi Nakamoto, who is a made up person who invented this currency that is sometimes worth a lot and sometimes worth a lot. It's just it goes up in value and down in value constantly. It is this weird thing that has some value that is constantly changing. I am frustrated with Bitcoin because it is based on nothing, but I knew about Bitcoin eight, nine years ago. The Econ Talk podcast did a whole episode on Bitcoin, and Stephen Colbert and his old Colbert reporter show did a story on Bitcoin, and I knew all about Bitcoin, 
and I regret not buying a hundred dollars worth because that hundred dollars would be worth many thousands of dollars now. <laughs> a and million I, is done. Nine million percent. I could buy a hot tub and a vacation home and all this stuff with my $100 investment because I knew enough to do it, but I didn't do it because I was like, this is just a weird thing. And I had two little kids and my focus was on changing diapers and whatnot. Yes, it is a weird thing. It is a crazy investment. Stephen Colbert's words on the Colbert Report ever long ago said, if you have some money that you don't ever need again, then sure, buy some Bitcoin. I remember the same thing as like, I just didn't really get it. I still kind of don't quite get it. At the same time, it seems sort of pro and anti-globalization all in one in the idea of it seems like it's another way to move financial value around the world in a very easy way. You see rich people in China that use Bitcoin to try to get their money out of the country because of capital controls and the way that the government there doesn't allow people to maybe move their money out of the economy. So that seems like kind of a pro. At the same time, it seems like it's a way where like people can do a lot of illegal black market purchases with it. And therefore, I don't know, I was thinking like, you know, people buying illegal arms could be a problem or literally somebody getting close with like a nuclear scientist that wants to get into like nuclear weapons or something like that and just paying them in Bitcoin. It seems like it's a way that's traceable with the way that the blockchain technology works, but it's also kind of untraceable or anybody can kind of get their hands on it too. So that whole world of it seems sort of strange, but I'm with you. Like, I guess we should have threw a hundred dollars at it a few, uh, a decade ago. And man, we could have owned our Tesla with ludicrous speed. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and you're right about all those sketchy things. The hackers that disable systems and to use ransomware, they always demand payment in Bitcoin. I'm sure it's involved in human trafficking and drug trafficking. But there was an article a while back about they undercovered this giant child pornography ring in Malaysia and they did it by tracking the Bitcoins. And I kind of dug in a little bit. I was like, I thought you couldn't track Bitcoins, but somehow you are able to, because the researchers did and good, glad they did to break up this ring. But it's it's just this weird, weird thing that yes, I'm resentful that I didn't buy in, but I'm still like skeptical of it as an investment. But if you had money that you never need again, then sure, buy some Bitcoin. Well, your favorite British historian, Niall Ferguson, gave an interview with Barron's a couple of weeks ago, and they asked him about Bitcoin. And I just want to read you this paragraph because I thought it was really interesting. And it's a way to think about possibly Bitcoin as a, as a store of value going forward. And so the interview was a question that said, what might drive Bitcoin higher? And Ferguson wrote, in a new edition of my book, The Ascent of Money, two years ago, I observed that if all the millionaires in the world collectively decided to hold 0.2% of their assets in Bitcoin, the Bitcoin price would be $15,000, which it reached this year. If all the millionaires made it 1% of the portfolio, then the price would be $75,000 per Bitcoin. So as people adopt this as a new form of asset that has a respectable place in a diversified portfolio, there is still quite a bit of upside. And then the next question was, there are about 18 and a half million Bitcoin outstanding, and the total amount is capped at 21 million. That values Bitcoin at 350 billion now versus about 10 trillion for all of the world's gold. And so, Don, Bitcoin, which is also interesting, does have a cap. At some point, all of them will have been mined and they'll be out there trading. And now the scarcity begins. Whereas you think about gold, whereas as we find more, 
there's more gold out there that can influence the price of it, right? There won't just be that hard scarcity of this is how many there are. Obviously, we're printing off tons of dollars every year to pay for debt. And therefore, there's always an inflation that happens with paper currency. Don't you think that makes a interesting investment opportunity for Bitcoin? You know, there's only going to be so many out there at some point. Yeah, that is interesting. Although I like the Bitcoin mining thing, it was kind of interesting because you get uh, really good, really fast computer chips and you do a bunch of math and that creates Bitcoins, which is kind of an interesting little niche market there. But yes, in theory, it is. It's a scarce resource. There are limited quantities as long as we believe the founders and creators and managers of Bitcoin and that the value should go up over time. And that is interesting. And so, yeah, I mean, hey, 0.2% of your net worth. Yeah, we should have put that into Bitcoin a while ago. I guess the only question is like what disrupts Bitcoin? And all I can say is maybe somebody figures out a new sort of e-currency or everybody stops believing that Bitcoin has value, right? Ultimately, some people have always said like money is one of the greatest religions out there in that everybody believes in it, right? There is no value to money unless people believe there's value there. And that's with Bitcoin. Some people clearly believe there's value there. Other people, they stay far away from it. And I guess that would maybe disrupt it at some point as either a new currency or people just stop believing there's value in it. Absolutely. And people could lose faith in it. There are many other currencies that are started in an attempt to become like Bitcoin. But yeah, if we lose faith in it or we change our perspective to something else, certainly that's possible. Or the opposite happens, and you believe that America has runaway inflations as we've driven up way too much debt. We followed the modern monetary money theory, right? We just kept printing more and more, and all of a sudden inflation happens. People don't see any value in dollars anymore, and therefore they surge to Bitcoin to hold their financial value. Do you think that could happen? I've been hearing this runaway inflation claim since Barack Obama was elected. I'm still not convinced. I continue to be unimpressed with it. And yes, I have faith in the American currency. Okay. Well, those are your four investment opportunities. And Don, I just want to ask you kind of the final question today then is Costco, Netflix, Tesla, Bitcoin. Which of those companies do you think has the next best 10 years of growth, right? When you invest in stocks, you're not investing for one day or a week. You're looking at 10 years out. Which company do you think grows the most in 10 years? And then also, which one do you think is gone in 50 years? Here's my order. If I was to order them in growth, I think it goes Costco, Netflix, Bitcoin, Tesla. But I think the one that's most likely to be gone in 10 years is Netflix because technology is merging so quickly and the way people view content is emerging. And I could see Netflix running behind. Okay. I'm going to go with, in terms of growth, I'm going Bitcoin. I think people are just starting to understand this thing even more. And I just think more and more people are going to surge into it. And I think that's going to be your hottest thing, especially because it's not tied to a product or a company. It's just tied to an idea. And people seem like they want to take speculative chances. I could see Tesla having a great 10 years. I could see all these companies having a great 10 years, but I could see Tesla being the one that's maybe not here 50 years from now. I could just see where there's new battery technology, a new type of car. Also, when you think about it, are we even driving cars 10 years from now uh, or 50 years from now? We're still waiting on that flying car, Don. And is it possible some other hot company shows up 
you know, Tesla's not, we're not really interested in trying to solve mobility issues anymore. I still think people love screens, love watching content. Now, does Netflix get disrupted? Maybe, but it also seems like a company that's not afraid to, to eat its own lunch. You think about it, they killed their own profitable DVD business so that they could become a streaming company and people need groceries. So I could just see Costco still here. Yeah, I can see those arguments. Those are all fair points. Well, Don, it's been a pleasure talking with you. And uh, do you have any final words of advice for your investment students or anybody out there looking to, uh, to, to think about companies? Uh, I think the advice is to be wise and be aware. And when uh, I tell you that a company is a bad choice, don't listen to me because I clearly don't know what I'm talking about. Yes, just a reminder, neither of us really know what we're talking about at all. We're just talking about these four companies in terms of where they might be going. Probably the best idea is just to buy an index fund, slowly and steadily and consistently invest and look for that 7% market return, right? That or FANG, go for FANG in the short run. Fair enough. Well, Don, it's been a pleasure talking with you and I look forward to talking with you next week. All right, great to talk with you, Zach. See ya. Bye.